Hello, everyone. I'm Peyton Howell, President of Consulting and Chief Commercial and Strategy Officer at ParExcel. And I'm delighted to be joined by Jim Anthony, Executive Vice President and Global Head of ParExcel Biotech, and Mike Davidian, Vice President of Health Advances, where he is one of the lead consultants advising biotech companies. Today, we're going to talk about funding biotech innovation and how to attract investors. We're excited to share findings from a new research report on the biotech investment landscape, which Health Advances and ParExcel partnered on. The new report highlights what investors look for when evaluating an emerging company and what companies should look for in a partner to help guide their success. Jim, let's start with you and the industry landscape. We've seen record financing and deals in the biotech industry in 2020 and 2021. How has COVID played a role in innovation and increased investment in biotech? Yeah, I mean, if you think back to 2019, there was already uh, momentum and progress in funding for biotech companies. We already saw an increase in the number of new trial starts and the amount of funding that was available. And then as we entered 2020, the industry really just went off on a boom, on a rocket ship, really. I think about the collaborative processes around Operation Warp Speed that created a huge demand for for companies to create, whether it was vaccines or to create therapies to help patients immediately. And that demand translated into a huge investment into the landscape. But it wasn't only COVID treatment and COVID vaccines. We saw that it sparked innovation and the need to invest in companies, regardless of the indication in the therapeutic area. I think people realize the unmet need for patients worldwide across numerous therapeutic areas. And I think there's no better metric to demonstrate the explosion in the, in the financing of biotech companies other than to say in the first half of 2021, there was as much financing as there was in all of 2020. And so as we look ahead, we just anticipate that this financing will continue to create unbelievable demand in our industry. Talking about the impact of COVID, Jim, how do you think the development needs of biotech customers evolved in this environment? Well, I think the pandemic redefined the way that clinical trials were being run in a number of different ways. I mean, first of all, if you think about the fact that almost the entire world in different ways and in different regions went into variations of lockdown, we had to redefine the, the way that we did clinical development almost overnight. And so there were immediate things that had to be deployed, um, topics that had been talked about and ideas that had been strategized upon, but honestly had really not been deployed in the way that they then needed to be deployed immediately. I'm talking about being able to do decentralized monitoring, uh, to be able to be able to interact and obtain patient data without patients coming in directly to the sites, um, being able to use technology to create patient outcomes and to work with patients through telemedicine. 
all those things immediately impacted patient care. And so they immediately impacted clinical trials and companies had to evolve immediately to, to really meet that need. Because as we know, we needed to have the data coming in in order to be able to treat patients worldwide. The other things that I think came out of it as well were areas that allowed us really to gain traction in important areas of advancing our development industry forward. So the ability to get real-world evidence and real-world data actually deployed into trials became a necessity. It was no longer something that was a nice-to-have. It was a need-to-have in order to progress assets forward. The other thing was diversity in clinical trials became forefront. I think as everyone remembers, immediately upon the the vaccine and treatment trials for for COVID patients, diversity became a big issue. You know, what was the makeup of those trials? And and all all providers as well as all sponsors had to immediately think about uh, the diversity of each of their clinical trials. Mike, I'm sure you can add to these comments that I just made. Thanks, Jim. Those are all great points. I would just highlight that COVID has really underscored the growing complexity of developing and commercializing therapeutics in our industry. That complexity introduces both opportunities and also risks for our customers to navigate. The first thing I'd highlight is that the number of therapeutic technologies is growing, and each of those brings its own pros and cons. So obviously, those of our customers that have access to those technologies, this is new ways for them to address critical unmet needs for patients. And it also introduces competitive threats for other of our customers. And I think the the foremost examples that we're aware of in the wake of COVID are obviously the mRNA vaccines and to a lesser extent, the viral vector vaccines. But in other areas over the last five to 10 years, we've seen the introduction of new therapeutic technologies such as gene therapies and cell therapies. The way in which patients are receiving care is probably the second piece that I would highlight. So here we see that stakeholders that are involved in delivering care is also changing. So really notably in the pandemic, telemedicine took off and many patients received their COVID vaccines at atypical locations. So a lot of patients went to pharmacies to get their COVID vaccines. Over the last five to 10 years, we've seen pharmacies emerge as uh, critical locations where patients receive inoculations and other medical care. And during the pandemic, we even saw patients receiving flu shots in their vehicles at curbside locations. So there's just a new ways to approach markets and and get therapies to patients. And those are just some high level examples of things that we're seeing changing. Let's turn our attention to the new report that ParXL and Health Advances partnered on, five ways to attract early stage investors. We know bringing a product to market has long odds. Emerging companies need to engage with multiple investors and partners to attract early stage financing. One of the five strategies identified in the report to help emerging companies differentiate their value proposition is expand your definition of unmet need. Mike, can you explain what that means and how companies can do that? Sure, Peyton. Our healthcare system is made up of stakeholders with differing incentives. Many management teams that we talk to focus exclusively on the needs of the patient who is undeniably the most important stakeholder. 
But focusing on the patient's needs exclusively can leave biopharma companies with blind spots. So I'll give a couple of examples here. Physicians today are incredibly time-strapped, and they're disinclined to prescribe therapies that are burdensome to prescribe and administer. It really takes their time away from working directly with patients. We've seen, for example, some interesting therapies with novel mechanisms struggle in behavioral health indications where there's undoubtedly an unmet need for new treatment options. And the therapies have struggled because physicians are unwilling to take on the burden of fulfilling onerous REMS programs. REMS is Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategies. Those are programs the FDA has put in place to monitor safety for drugs that they're concerned about, but they also have a significant burden for physicians. And those therapies, which are very interesting and important treatment options, have really struggled to gain traction in some circumstances because physicians have been unable to take on that burden. The second example I want to talk about is payers. We've seen in some rare neurology indications, payers take an interesting step in which they have limited access to the therapy beyond the FDA label requirements. So the label for these drugs enables a broader set of patients to receive access to the drug, but the payers have said you know, we're going to actually limit things further. We're going to take the enrollment requirements in the pivotal clinical study and use those as our criteria for access. And that's been a relatively new development that we've seen and is an example of how payers can limit access to a therapy. Another way clients can expand their definition of unmet need is to ensure they thoroughly consider the competitive alternatives, not just the therapies that are available today, but also those that are in the pipeline and will be available in the future. Regulators and payers are not going to be sympathetic to therapeutics whose clinical data reflects an outmoded approach to treatment, even if the clinical paradigm changed in the course of the development program. So you really need to be thoughtful about how you you think about your development program and make sure it's conscious of the therapies that will be available in the market in the future. So failing to analyze unmet need thoroughly, thinking about all the stakeholders, thinking about today and the future, can result in overblown estimates of market size and uptake. And one investor that we talked to in the course of this report said they specifically avoid companies that offer hand-wavy assumptions about the total addressable market. And instead, their preference is companies who come forward with a presentation of the science and a detailed assessment of the potential patient population, including which patients are the core and which patients are the, the upside opportunities that may be available in certain circumstances. The second strategy identified in the report is develop a strong plan, then de-risk it. How can companies do that? Jim, let's start with you. Peyton, the word that comes to mind immediately is credibility. I think that uh, investors in this industry are always going to know their information and do their homework, and they're looking for transparent and well-vetted data packages and clinical development plans that show the company has done their work. The advice that the report said is don't inflate the probability of its success. Don't try to give inaccurate estimates of time or cost. 
you know, rely on sound science and rely on sound data. They will do their own due diligence and they will uncover the issues and walk away if you try to hide something. Ways that uh, companies can really help themselves is to have top-notch scientific advisory boards. Those key opinion leaders who are helping to guide the companies and position those assets are extremely valuable to getting those investments in the early stage. These companies should also look to include comprehensive preclinical packages. You know, the proof of concept work is an advantage to them. Savvy investors will look for pharmacological modeling and simulations. They'll be looking to see if there's ways of predicting patient responses. Uh, and they really want to, to know and have some confidence that their investment uh, can work. There's other ways to de-risk the development plan. Mike, I maybe toss it over to you for a few more. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, if possible, companies should offer investors, to your point, multiple shots on goal to de-risk an investment and to provide multiple opportunities to profit. So we've seen multiple ways in which companies can position themselves to do that. One is platform companies that will churn out multiple products using a single technology or, or scientific approach. Another is companies that have assembled portfolios of attractive molecules based on their putic area expertise. The third way in which we've seen this done is companies that have a single asset but highlight the multiple ways in which that asset can be applied to various therapeutic areas. Jim, we know recent advances in drug development tools and technologies can lower risk and reduce the time to bring a new product to market. How can companies accelerate development with innovation? Well, I think the, the benefits of innovation are 100% clear. Drugs developed that are using biomarkers are twice as likely to succeed in the market than those that aren't. People are looking at machine learning, artificial intelligence, language processing activities in order to accelerate literature reviews and to optimize the way that trials and enrollment can be maintained. Uh, computer modeling and simulations can help small companies complete uh, either initial trials or by looking at cloud processing and storing data to cut some of their operating costs. We've seen in our own research that the use of synthetic control arms and leveraging data sources and real-world evidence can help to power studies and get them done in a more efficient way. And then surrogate and intermediate endpoints can shorten the development timelines. Finally, the, the way that these trials are designed, whether they're adaptive designs, if they're basket trials or decentralization of, of activities, all of these things are there to streamline clinical research. And I think the investors have responded that they will reward the companies that can go seamlessly through their development plans and will call out those type of innovations that they will use. The ability to move from a phase one study in which you prove your concept and then to move quickly right into that first registrational trial really can shorten the timeline uh, to launch. And I think the investors will have confidence in companies that can, can speak credibly 
about how those different types of innovations and designs will return the value on that investment. When looking at potential investors, it's important for emerging companies to know who they are pitching to so they can make a compelling argument on why they are a good fit. Mike, what did you learn from this research about what biotechs need to consider when looking at potential investors? Well, you know, the old adage, know your audience, is definitely true. So you should do your research and consider who the investors are that you're speaking with, what their preferences are, what they look for in a management team and what's important to them. What do their portfolio companies look like? Are they investing in orphan drugs or platform technologies? And once you do that research, you can tailor your presentation a little bit to make it more appealing to them. You should also understand where they bias their investments and what their strategy is. So for example, many venture capital firms have a preferred round of funding or a preferred stage of company. So a company isn't going to get very far with a investor who is focused on placing big bets in assets with clinical data in series C or D rounds if they're coming in with a preclinical asset and looking for a series A or B round. So that kind of information can really help you think about which investors you want to target for your conversations. You should also keep in mind that investors don't like to think of themselves simply as a piggy bank. They're also mentors and partners. These are people with deep industry experience. And some investors can provide commercial strategic guidance or analytical support to help refine a product's value proposition, for example. So while the market is hot now, we should keep in mind that it's eventually going to cool off. We should assemble an investment team whose aspirations for your product and whose timeline to realize their investment aligns with your own goals and your own timeline to the greatest extent possible. These are the investors who are going to be more willing to fund you through the ups and downs and reinvest in multiple rounds, even when the economy isn't so hot. Great points. The final strategy in the report is reveal your exit strategy. Why is that important? Yeah, investors want to understand your exit strategy to make sure that you have a plan and you're thinking thoughtfully about how you're going to use your resources and, and their investment capital. So a well-defined exit strategy will highlight how you're planning to develop the product and your preparedness for development and commercialization. You want to make it easy for investors by helping them think through how much capital is needed. And I think Jim alluded to some of these points earlier when he was talking about development. And also how long the capital will be committed to the next value inflection point. So for early rounds of funding, you, you probably don't need to have a, a specific IPO or M&A exit in mind. For later rounds of funding, you probably do. And you should be flexible in these conversations with investors. So you want to come with a stake in the ground, an idea, a plan, but also signal a willingness to consider other options because these are people with experience in the market who have ideas about how things should go. And, and you'd be well advised to, to listen to those folks when they share their opinions. For biotechs, success or failure hinges on getting their strategy right and knowing how to effectively articulate their value. In looking for a partner to help guide that strategy, how can Parexcel Biotech and Health Advances support companies? Jim, let's start with you. 
Thanks, Peyton. And this is a, a question that's near and dear to my heart over the last several years. Uh, our ability to work with biotech companies has just been a, a tremendous success for the industry and for ParXL and for health advances. Our dedicated biotech division has worked with stealth and early seed funded companies and really gone on the journey with them as they uh, develop their assets and seek their exit strategies and commercialization of their assets. We really start at the core of strategic consulting and regulatory pathway guidance. It's a ability for ParXL to give advice and practical, implementable actions to companies right from the start. We have experienced uh, experts, whether they're former regulatory and FDA, EMEA, uh, China's NMPA and other agencies, if they're market access experts or, or modeling and simulation experts, we're able to provide that guidance right from the start of their asset development. And then every step along the clinical development journey by designing the right type of clinical trials, looking at ways to adapt from, from proof of concept into registration trials and to analyze and deliver the data that's needed. We've really built a biotech division that is a, a partner that these customers can trust. They can come to us for experience and innovation along with being uh, flexible and adaptable uh, to their needs. One of the core areas that we look to time and time again is that partnering we have with our health advances colleagues. And, and Mike, I would welcome a few more comments from you on how health advances is there every step of the way with these customers as well. Sure, I'm happy to provide a quick plug for health advances here. We can help companies understand and articulate the value of their products and platforms with commercial and business strategy services. So, for example, we help develop go-to-market strategies so that companies can deliver on their value proposition effectively and achieve a strong competitive advantage. We provide portfolio strategy and indication prioritization and lifecycle management support so that companies can prioritize the development efforts and the ways in which they invest their resources because those resources are obviously finite. And lastly, I'd point out that we support partnering negotiations by providing potential investors and strategic partners with robust market assessments, valuation, and financial analysis. This has been a great conversation, and we've covered a lot of territory. This is certainly an exciting time for the biotech industry. Thank you so much, Jim and Mike, for sharing your valuable insights and experience. To our listeners, if you're interested in seeing the full market research report, five ways to attract early stage investors, please visit www.parxl.com. And be sure to follow ParXL on social media to learn more insights from our experts and subscribe to this podcast on Google Play, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Until next time, thank you for listening.